Now, I want to be careful in how I jump into this topic today because I also want to be aware that, you know, even as you guys, we keep putting folks in front of you every week. Um, you probably would have to admit, you looked at a lot of these faces and you go, I don't, I don't know a lot of those people. Maybe you'd stare at them and go, I maybe know half of them. Okay, so that means as a pastor as well, when I don't know folks well, you don't know what they believe, right? So there could be people today who are going to hear their first message on Pentecost. That's the reality. And so that's a challenge for me because I'm, I'm not going to want to challenge us to go further in Pentecost. I want to introduce Pentecost to some of us as well. So that's kind of what we're going to try and do this morning. All right, here's our title. Pentecost, a new day of different power and something more to be experienced. And that's what I, I want to unpack those two thoughts. Pentecost is a new day of different power and something more to be experienced. That's what Pentecost is. Now let me start with a quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I'm doing this for a reason. And I'm not going to get into these thoughts too much today. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones would have been a pastor. He's uh, from the last century in the mid-1900s. He would have pastored a church in, in London, England. He would have been a pastor, a scholar, and a man who was passionate about Pentecost. And a lot of people would not know that last part about him. He wrote limitedly about this towards the end of his life, but pretty prolifically, and took a position on experiencing Pentecost in a particular way that was pushing it to the edge, theologically for some. But the, the, the challenge for us and Demon Martin Lloyd-Jones was he was extremely respected as a theologian. So this is not some guy who was like kind of cuckoo in the charismatic world. This guy was as solid theologically as anybody you're going to find in church history. And yet he was also invigorating the realities of Pentecost amongst God's people. This is what he says. He says, I happen to be one of those people who is not content merely with experience. I want to know something about that experience. I want to know what I am experiencing. And I want to know why I am experiencing it and how it has come about. If we are to grow in grace and to go forward and exercise our senses, as the author of the epistle of Hebrews puts it, then we must of necessity ask certain questions and be anxious to know how the things that have happened to us really have come to take place. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to effectively show from Scripture the realities of Pentecost that are to be in our lives. Now, depending on what your church background is and what you've been exposed to as you, you've grown up, churches don't always do the two of these things real well. There are churches that are, are, are better about charismatic giftedness experiences of the Spirit but do a poor job of explaining why that is biblically. And, and because they do a poor job in that, sometimes it kind of goes sideways and ends up in places that it wasn't supposed to end up because they weren't carefully looking at what the scriptures said. But then you have on the other side, churches that are very careful to look at the scriptures who end up with not a whole lot of experiencing of the spirit. Neither one of those is completely right or completely wrong. They're just deficient in different ways. And, and as a church, we're aiming at doing both. We, we, and you guys would know, we have a high value for teaching the Word of God. 
uh, I think we could have a greater, much greater experiencing of the nearness of God. And so I, I think if we're deficient, we're deficient on the teaching outweighs the experience. But we're not planning on abandoning the teaching, I was going to say anytime soon, ever. Uh, because the, the sort of charismatic presentation that kind of says, you know, shut your Bibles and let's just, you know, go off into the experience realm. That, that's not biblical, right? You should never have an antagonism toward this. You should never have an antagonism for teaching. That's a massive part of the New Testament is they are teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching everywhere. And the spirit is in that in particular ways. But we want to make room in our lives for a new day of different power. That's what Pentecost brought. So let's unpack that phrase, a new day of different power. All right, so this new day dawns on us, and the man who's going to introduce this new day is going to be John the Baptist. If you will, he's the last Old Testament prophet, but he's also the forerunner of all that God's about to do in the new covenant. So a new day has dawned. And John the Baptist is going to introduce this new day, right? We know a little bit about him, but just, I want to draw your attention to not just the, the guy dressed weird who was baptizing people in the wilderness. If you, if you sat in the school of John the Baptist and said, what did John the Baptist teach on? I don't know if you've ever thought about him that way. As a teacher... As a guy who's going to inaugurate this new day, John, what were your theological points that you wanted to weigh in on? You know, you weren't giving out diets on locusts and honey and how to dress and how to live out in the edge of the wilderness and call people to repentance. What were your theological points? Well, look, look we're going to just pick up on some of them because there, there aren't a lot. And these are going to stick out because of that. Luke chapter 3 verse 15 says, As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptized you with water, but he was mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now just get the feel for this statement from the John the Baptist. Of, there's, this, there's this electricity in the air. There's this anticipation that something's happening in the spirit. And people are looking for answers. And they finally walk up and press John's play button. And of all the things he can say, this is what he says. This is what he points to. Now remember, John is the one who points out to us when Jesus arrives on the scene, who he is in the atoning sacrifice sense. John's the one who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, of all the things that could be said about Jesus, John the Baptist is going to be most known for those two things. He's not going to explain that he's the creator, that he's eternal. He's not going to break out Christology. He's, he's going to say two things primarily. He's going to say, that's the atoning sacrifice we've all been waiting for. That's the Lamb of God who will reconcile us back to the Father. And he's the one who will baptize us in the Holy Spirit. 
of all the things, just think for a moment, of all the things that John could say about Jesus Christ. Those are the two things that when he pulls out his chalkboard and he says, okay, students, sit down. This is what I've got to tell you. He's telling them to anticipate the one who's coming is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And he he said that seemingly on more than one occasion. John chapter 1, verse 33 says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? This is he who's going to do a lot of things. This is he who restores the world to the Father. This is he who justifies the ungodly. This is he whose blood will forgive the sins of all. But what the Father revealed to John the Baptist to make sure he noticed, John, the one that you see the Spirit coming and resting upon, he's the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Listen, Whatever your understanding is in this category, whatever you've been exposed to, that's significant, isn't it? John the Baptist has a limited venue that he wants to talk about, and this is at the top of it. Craig Keener made these comments about John the Baptist. He said, when John the Baptist announced that the one coming after him would baptize in the Holy Spirit, he probably understood that the one whose way he was preparing was God himself. No one but God could pour out God's Spirit on his people. John, listen to this thought. This is helpful. John was not thinking in terms of only this or that aspect of the Spirit's ministry, of one experience or another. He was thinking of God's promise to fully empower his people with his own presence at the time of the end. The time when he would restore his people. This is why different New Testament passages may employ the language of baptizing the Spirit, receiving the Spirit, and so forth, in somewhat different ways. All of these ways are encompassed in the original promise. Our various traditions may draw on the language or emphasis of one passage or another, right in what we see, but neglecting what others rightly see in different passages. When we get past the nomenclature, listen, most Christians agree We receive the Spirit in some way at conversion. And we can also have subsequent experiences with the Spirit. We all desperately need God's power to fulfill God's work. All right, so here's probably the common ground that everybody shares no matter where we've come from in our background on this subject. We all receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. Conversion is a work of the Spirit. You cannot convert yourself. So for you to come into the kingdom, for you to come into agreement with God, for you to have the knowledge that God is who exactly who he revealed himself to be, you can't self-create that. You cannot born yourself again. The Holy Spirit has to do that. So there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. But you will notice a strange little word choice in the, in the Scriptures. A question of whether or not believers in some places in the New Testament have, quote, received the Spirit. Now unless those asking that question, we're going to find out that those, and I'm not going to build on this today, but those asking that question are the Apostle Paul. 
I don't think he was clueless about what took place at conversion. I don't think he didn't realize for you to be converted, the Holy Spirit would have to be present and involved in your life. So what the Bible is going to install is the idea that you can be converted and then after that conversion, there can be activity of the Spirit that gets added to that. Now, I hope everybody's on common ground in that category. We may disagree on what to call that, what terminologies apply to that, but I hope we would all agree that there is a converting experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives and there are subsequent experiences in our lives of encountering the Holy Spirit among us, through us. All right, so that's what we're going to explore today. Let's go back in the Old Testament. Right? There is a different, a new day of different power that's coming. Right? And this is not something that gets inaugurated by John the Baptist introducing something. This is throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets were looking for this day. Isaiah 44 verse 3. Isaiah says, I, speaking for God, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Right, so what, what Isaiah is experiencing, now get this, Isaiah is walking through God's story and the conditions spiritually are dry ground everywhere. For as far as the eye can see, it's a desert with cracks in the ground. There's not a lick of moisture anywhere to be seen spiritually what's going on. And Isaiah stands and prophesies. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say God's going to do that to us. He says there's coming a day when God will pour out his spirit. So Isaiah was able to grasp that there was a day on God's calendar that was not like today. Because today, there ain't an outpouring going on. Isaiah is one of the few guys speaking for God, living for God, affected by God. Everything else is a desert. But he sees another day coming when that will not be the case. Joel the prophet also saw that day. Chapter 2 of Joel verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Right? Joel stood in his day just like Isaiah, but, but he looked up in the spirit. And by God's grace, he saw another day, a new day. Where the power of God would be there in a different way. He saw something different in the future. He saw this pouring out. So if you trace the history of the Old Testament. At best you can say there are moments when there are just sprinkles. Here and there. And maybe a little downpour briefly for a moment. And then that kind of lifts. And then you're hard pressed to find somebody who's interacting with God very personally in the lay of the land. But both Joel and Isaiah describe a day when on all flesh, this common experience all over the place amongst people, God would, because God would be doing something different. God would be postured to pour something out. Listen, God was not pouring out 
in Joel's day or in Isaiah's day. And that's pretty important to get because you can get this idea that, well, God's always God. We're the problem. We're the disconnect. Well, we are a problem. We are a disconnect. But God's got an agenda. And God's agenda for this coming day was to pour out his spirit. It was a little bit different. Now, notice something in this outpouring. It's not going to be a selective outpouring, which we'll see in the Old Testament was very selective. You were hard-pressed to find people that were filled with the Spirit or empowered by the Spirit in the Old Testament. They're just rare. But that would be common in the New Testament, that there'd be an outpouring on, quote, all flesh. There would be particular characteristics, and this is very important. If, if, if I pulled the Bible out of your lap and I said, hey, there's this thing that God's going to do in an exceeding great way. He's going to show up. He's just going to show up. Man, it's going to be awesome. Your response might, well, what's that going to look like? What's going to be involved in that? And we can make up a script. We could say, well, it could be all kinds of things. Or we could borrow from what God's already said. And he says right here, the particular characteristics are going to be prophecy, dreams, visions. Now we might want a lot of things to happen when God really moves and pours out his spirit. But what Joel saw, and he saw it because God showed it to him, was that when God pours out his spirit, you begin to see activity like this. Prophecy, dreams, visions, and they're common to all. It's on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, male and female servants. You don't have to be somebody. It's not about you being special. It's just about what God's doing. Now, notice, I'm not going to actually pick up the passages in, in Acts chapter 2 just for a moment, a minute. But on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God shows up in this upper room meeting. This is where the inaugural moment of what Pentecost was accomplishing. And this rushing wind comes through that upper meeting. And, and suddenly these tongues of fire rest upon each person. There's this, this symbol of the presence of God. Now it's being transferred to each person who's in that. And they suddenly begin to speak in tongues. And they go out into the streets and there's this joyful exuberance about God and they're speaking in tongues. Right? That's what takes place at Pentecost. When Peter goes to explain this thing, he picks up Joel the prophet. This is how he's going to explain Pentecost to these people going, what on earth is going on? You look like a bunch of drunk fools staggering out in the street. The only weird thing is you speak in languages that we can get and we're from all over the world and, and we're understanding what you're saying. That's a little weird. What, what's going on? So this is how Peter's going to explain it. Acts 2 verse 16. He says this, what you're seeing right here, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. I love the New American Standards translation. This is that. Now, study carefully what Peter is saying right here. Because a modern person who could be a modern person who loves their Bible, but doesn't love Pentecost as much as they need to, could take Peter to task on this. Couldn't you? Come on, if you're a, if you're a, a Bible loyalist, I'm a Bible loyalist. I could have done this to Peter. Peter, this is not that. This is not that because those people are speaking in tongues. And Joel doesn't say anything about speaking in tongues. Joel says they're going to prophesy, have dreams, and visions. And 0 for 3. So was the Apostle Paul wrong 
Or, or are we being invited to understand the, the domain, the realm, the activity of the Spirit in a way that doesn't feel like put it under a microscope and be able to tell me which molecules are involved? Because Peter didn't do that. Peter just said, there was a day coming. And this is the day. This is the day Joel saw. It's finally arrived. It's the day Isaiah saw. It's finally here. There's this outpouring. And when the Spirit pours out, stuff like this is going to happen. Stuff like this is going to happen. That's how he explains Pentecost. So I appreciate Craig Keener's thought. He says, John was not thinking in terms of only this or that aspect of the Spirit's ministry, of one experience or another. He was thinking of God's promise to fully empower his people. This is what's happening here. This is the day of empowerment. This is that last day. It's a different moment. It's a new day. God is not doing what he was doing before. He has a new day in which his Spirit is going to come among us and it's going to be experienced differently than what those in the past knew. Jesus anticipated this day. A couple of statements from Jesus leading up to this day of Pentecost. John chapter 7 verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is that same imagery. This is that outpouring imagery. This is Jesus looking at a day the same way Joel saw this day. It was rivers of living water. It wasn't you'll discover a small pond. It wasn't there'll be a puddle. Which thirsty people would be glad for a puddle. But Jesus saw what Joel saw. He saw rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Once Jesus ascends to the Father. This new day now is inaugurated. And it's time for the Spirit to come. In a way suitable for these times. These times. How many of us are aware that we're still in the same times that the New Testament was written in? Matter of fact, Peter's defense is that in the end, in the last days, Joel said. So Peter adds a clarifier there that what Joel saw was the last day's ministry of the Spirit of God. And you and I are still in the last days. Until Jesus comes back, the church lives in the last days. The church needs what Joel saw, needs what Isaiah saw, needs what Jesus was describing here. Luke 24, verse 40. The other side of the cross, Jesus tells his disciples, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is Jesus anticipating this day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, Luke again records Jesus says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For back to John, you know, John only taught a couple of things. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit 
not many days from now. And then in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Hang on to those words. Come upon you. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then Jesus said, listen, this is vitally important. Of all that you know, of all that you're capable of right now, stay in Jerusalem because you're not ready to go anywhere yet. Until you get clothed with this power that prophets have been seeing and that I have made you aware of. So here's a quick summary throughout. We are going to experience, reality of us, we are going to experience the nearness of God and the empowering of God in ways that are uniquely suited for our times. That's what Pentecost did. It was not the experience in the Old Testament. It was not the experience of those beforehand, except for a rare few. But it is the experience for God's people now. It's a new day of different power. Now let me highlight the different power piece of this just for a second. Right. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. I, I, I love this verse. Um, I love what this verse does to me. I love what this verse inspires in me. I love the faith it awakens in me. As a matter of fact, I quote this verse more when I wake up in the morning than any other verse that I quote. Usually before I get out of bed. I I grab this verse. I take God up on his promise. You said, you said, God, I would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon me. You said that. And the the day that I have in front of me, the the needs that are before me, the life that you've called me to live, I'm going into it based on the promise you made that I would receive power when the Holy Spirit was upon me. So I proceed into life with with that awareness almost every day of my life. Now, let let me throw some thought out here about understanding what this power is by understanding what it is not. Right? I'm going to invite theological criticism on this. But I think I'm on good ground in all three of these statements. One, this power that Jesus is describing is not the power of the gospel. I'll leave that one out there for just a second. Right? Romans chapter 1 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The way in which God describes his word, his word is living and active. What God sticks into these concepts that get trapped in these words, it's got power in it. And so there's this unique power, right? God's word, is, it's sent forth to accomplish things. He said, then it will. It will accomplish all that I send it forth to do. So the word of God is living and active. So there, there is a dimension of the word that we speak from God that has its own power in it. The gospel has its own power, which is a good thing for me to be aware of. That when I'm sharing the gospel with people, it's not my power I need to be worried about. It's the power of the gospel that I'm sharing that I should be focused on. I am letting something into the room that's got its own power to it. It can do stuff in the moment in somebody else's thinking in their heart. I just need to let it off the leash. It's got its own power. But they had the gospel before Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Right? If the gospel 
is a revelation of the person and work of Christ, they've got that. Jesus is resurrected. He's gone to the cross. He has been the atoning sacrifice. He has done everything necessary to restore them to God. He is ascending to the Father. Uh, the, the picture of the ascension, that resurrection will do for us. We will ascend. We will, we will be resurrected to the Father as well. That's all done. They can leave Jerusalem right now and tell the gospel to the world. But, but, don't go anywhere yet. You just don't need the power of the gospel, which, by the way, you very much do need the power of the gospel. But you need to be clothed with power. Power needs to come on you, not just on your message. Right? So I, I don't think what Jesus was pointing to on Pentecost was the day in which the gospel received his power. It was the day in which people received power. Second, uh, this power is not the power of mere human effort. Although, do you know the Bible calls on all kinds of human effort? Sometimes we, we get a strange understanding of grace. Grace can turn you into this blob that sits on a sofa. You know, because we want to be careful that God's doing things that we, you know, it's not about us, it's not about us. Next thing you know, we're doing nothing. Um, hey, the Bible calls on us to do a lot of things. It's just that your doing's never going to venture into the justification category. It's never going to go there. Grace is going to meet it at the door and say, you're not needed here. We got this settled. God's for you for reasons besides what you're coming up with. But, but go get them. Have at it. Your, your activity matters. Whether or not you are doing particular things matters. Human effort, human striving, talents, skills. Is that what this is about? There's a lot of talent in the room. There's all kinds of skills in the room. Was Jesus saying, wait in Jerusalem until you get your unique talent? Or your human skills. Right, that's not what he was saying. So this is not that. It's a different kind of power. It's not ingenuity or education or acquired wisdom. Although we will need all of that. The Bible teaches a lot. The New Testament church taught a lot. We are told all throughout scripture to get wisdom. To seek. To learn. To grow to have our minds transformed so the, the bible's not anti-knowledge not anti-knowing things but that's not what they're waiting for on the day of pentecost he doesn't say hey wait in jerusalem till the ups truck pulls up with a box of books and read them all then then go in all the world they're not going to have books for a long time. Gutenberg, remember that guy? He's way off in the future. Nobody's going to be reading much of anything for quite a while. But there was something for them to get. There's a lot of learning that you and I do along the way in life that God calls us to learn. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman, doesn't need to be ashamed. He handles accurately the word of truth. So the Bible does say that, but that's not what they're waiting for in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. See, what they're waiting for, it's not like enrolling in college. It's more like plugging in an appliance. Right? You know the difference, right? Enrolling in college, right? I mean, you're going to learn some things, get some grades, study harder, 
grow a little bit, get a diploma because you pass certain things and you're in a different place now. That's all fine. And we should all enroll in, in this college. But Pentecost is more like plugging in an appliance. It's, it's, it's like you were one thing and then all of a sudden, boom, you, you just came to life in a different way. Something else is in you and there's a power source in you that wasn't in you just a moment ago. That's more like Pentecost. I remember I put in your outline there this little note. I think this is helpful for us to receive from God. Pentecost is power made personal. Which is contrasted with the Old Testament. But there's something to learn from the Old Testament here. So let me race through these verses that are there in your outline. Right, there are moments where this power is residing in human beings in the Old Testament. Exodus 3 verse 31 verse 3 says, I have filled him, speaking of Bezalel, with the Spirit of God. Right? So if you're thinking that nobody was ever filled with the Spirit of God until the New Testament, you need to go back and read the Old Testament. Because he is filled with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship. So he's about to be appointed to a task that he's going to need God to uniquely empower him for that task. And, and God does. He fills him with the Spirit. Judges 14 verse 6. Speaking of Samson says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon. Do you see those two words? Came upon. Can you hold on to those two words carefully? He came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hands, but he did not tell his father and mother what he had done. Numbers chapter 11, verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. He took of the spirit who was upon him, right? This is God interacting with Moses. Remember, Moses got a unique anointing that no one else had. So much so that if you wanted to go get a guy who maybe could get a word of wisdom for you, the line went around the mountain to meet with him. And remember, his father-in-law says, Moses, you can't keep doing this, man. This is going to kill you. And so there's this thing that God does here. He says, he took of the spirit who was upon him, right? So the spirit is upon him. He's come upon Moses. And he placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they didn't do it again. All right, so hang on to that. Isn't that an interesting thing? When the spirit gets upon people, sometimes they prophesy. And for them, they did it once. 1 Samuel 10 verse 10. When they came to the hill there, Behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, this is speaking of Saul, so that he prophesied among them. So there's another instance. If you want to mimic and learn, when the Spirit came upon, where there's this rush, this plug-in-the-appliance moment for people, this is the kind of stuff that happened. This is the kind of stuff that happened. They prophesied. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now that, that's unique. Now notice something here. Each of these moments depicts an individual or two or at most 70 amongst millions of people who have a unique encounter and empowering by the Spirit of God. 
When people wanted to have an interaction with, the, with God and revelation, they would send for the holy man. They'd send for the seer. They'd, they'd have to go find the prophet. When the prophet was in your town, that was a big deal. Because there was something unique about that guy. What was unique about him? That he was a, just a wonderful, hard-studying kind of guy? No, God had placed his spirit upon him uniquely. And he got revelation from God. And you wanted to run to that guy and say, hey, tell me something from God. What, what you got from God? But the second he left town, guess what? You couldn't do that with anybody else who lived in your neighborhood. And that's just true all over the history of Israel. There were a few people who experienced this different kind of power. The average guy never did. And then you show up in Pentecost and suddenly the spirit is going to come in a day of outpouring on all flesh. Things are about to change. And the wind blows through the room. And just in case you don't kind of get this, a little piece of fire goes and sits on every individual. It's not one fire. It's not located in the side of the room. Listen, in the tabernacle, that's what you had. Hey, the, the fire of the presence of God was wherever the tabernacle is. Hey, where is it scheduled to be right now? Let's go where that thing is. And we can, we can experience the presence of God there too. We can't experience it here. But we can go there and see the fire of the presence of God. And then God shows up at Pentecost and says, you, 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 you. And doesn't leave anybody out. And they all spoke in tongues when the Spirit came in that moment. And then, you know, if we fast forward a few years, we'll borrow from our friends in Corinth because they're helpful in teaching us a lot of things. Right, normalcy is set in now. Now you're 30 years almost later since the day of Pentecost and you're visiting the church in Corinth and Paul's explanation to them is very individual. He says all these in chapter 12, verse 11, all these spiritual gifts that he just illuminated. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Each one. He apportions. The, the Spirit distributes himself each, each one. Each and every one the Bible depicts as getting a distribution from God in this way. Typical meeting in Corinth was described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 Verse 26, he says, when you come together, each one, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. That would never have been your experience in Israel. When you come together, you got nothing. Unless the prophet's in town. He's got something. Unless you're one of the 70 elders. For a certain period of time. Unless you can get around King David. Right? There was rare encounters. But this is not that day anymore. This, this is a new day of different power among the people of God. So when the church comes together now, it sounds like 1 Corinthians chapter 14. When you come together, you got something in the Spirit. And you got something in the Spirit. And you got something in the Spirit. And you, got, you don't all have the same thing. But when you come together, make use of that. For this new day that you live in. Alright, so if that's true, here's my question about, about us. About us. Do you and I have new day expectations? 
What exactly would you and I be considering, pondering, and welcoming into our lives today in this new day? What exactly would that be? I gotta answer that for me. And you gotta answer that for you. If this is a new day, and there is this new power, what exactly is that gonna look like for me? When I, when I go to receive that, what's it gonna look like? Is it gonna be seeable? Is it gonna be experienced? Is, is it not? I, I gotta answer that. And, and you have to answer that. I do an injustice to Isaiah and Joel and Jesus and all who pointed to this new day that Pentecost inaugurated. If this is an unreality for me or too distant from my life. Gordon Fee says, the single most notable characteristic of the Spirit of God is his power. Thus, the Spirit of God is recognized as the invisible power creating or affecting a whole variety of realities. An invisible power that's affecting or creating a whole variety of realities. That, that's what I pray for every day. God, you said I'd receive power when your Spirit came upon me. There's going to be a variety of needs in my life today that are going to need that power. And I need to learn how to receive it and be available to it. Spirit of God, therefore, meant the effective working of the power of God. It's probably fair to say that even though the two words, spirit and power, are not coterminous, the presence of the one, spirit, always implies the presence of the other, power. Always. They're just so related in Scripture that that is going to be true. Because Pentecost is going to bring a different power into our lives in common spaces. All right, last point. Something more to be experienced. Something more to be experienced. Is there something more to be experienced? Do you believe that? Do I believe that? That, that what I have right now, there's more. And, that, and that, that's a loaded question because that may test your theology because your theology could say, well, you get everything when you're born again. All right, I'm, I'm going to talk about that in just for a second. So you would theologically say, no, there's nothing more. And, and you'd be wrong, in my opinion. But you might say, no, I fully agree that there's more. And then that becomes a personal question for you to evaluate how you're doing. Are you in a good place of experiencing that more? Or are you in a historic, romantic moment of remembering? I remember the glory days, hallelujah, back in the day. Can I run off all you guys who are going to come tell me a back in the day story? It's not that I don't want to hear about back in the day. I've got back in the day stories. I just want to be jolted by the, the fact, the reality, that when I have to tell you a back-in-the-day story, it's because I can't tell you a recent one. And I want to be jolted by that. I want to become aware. Peter understood that the end days would start at Pentecost and run until the return of Jesus. We, we haven't exited those days. So if this kind of power was needed 
then can somebody make an argument for me from Scripture that it's not needed now? Aren't we still reaching lost people? Aren't we still caring for human beings that have got depravity and sin roaming around inside of them? Aren't there demons still in our world? Isn't life still got struggles and sickness and brokenness in it? Aren't people locked up on the inside in cells because they can't figure out what it is that's chained me and held me in place? And it would be helpful if somebody could come with a word for them and expose that to them in a way that's helpful. Are we not living in that day? I can't understand anybody who draws the conclusion that this was for a limited time. It's clearly in the New Testament until Jesus returns. And since he hasn't returned yet, i got to ask myself the question, and I want to help you do that too. How am I doing with experiencing the more that Pentecost awakens for me to be aware of? Right, here's an interesting thought. I think I put this question in your outline. Am I a Christian who lives in an old day of power? Yeah, I believe in power. I just believe in the old version of it. A New Testament Christian who lives by Old Testament power. You, you could be a person who believes strongly in the power of the gospel. And not believe much in the power of Pentecost. The Old Testament people had, had the power of the gospel. right? The gospel didn't just get discovered the New Testament, Abraham was transferring the gospel everywhere he went. So you could believe in the power of the God, believe in a powerful gospel, and you can swing and miss in the category of Pentecost. You can believe in education and wisdom and understanding and make sure you read and study and go to seminary and know lots of stuff. You can believe in the power of that and still not believe and operate in the power of Pentecost. You can believe in the power of human effort. And this one, if you stop and think about this one for a second, I won't take a second, but how, how many of us live our lives making lots and lots of room for what we need to do? I've got to do this. It's early in the morning. I got to get, I got this, I got that going on. I got to plan this. I got to have this argument. I got to do this meeting. I got to get around that person. And, and day after day after day comes to a close and we have been with God. But then we stand in the meeting like this and we go, I believe in the power of Pentecost, brother. Bring it, bring it. Yeah, that's, that's easy for me to say too. But you know, when I don't make any room for the power of Pentecost, when I don't awaken a pursuit in my life, when I won't die on that hill to experience all that God has, I just got fancy words. That's what I got. I believe a lot in the power of human effort. I believe a lot in the power of human effort. So I got to prepare my argument. I got to get around that person. I got to take hold of this. I got to do that next. I got so much going on. And that's how most of us are living, right? Because we do believe a lot in the power of human effort, don't we? But what about God showing up in power, mysteriously, enabling, creating, causing, adjusting, using his power to accomplish things that we could never accomplish on our own? Is there an experiential dimension to the ministry of the Spirit? An experiential dimension? dimension to the ministry of the spirit and let me say this in a weird way to try and get our attention there is a non-experiential dimension 
to the ministry of the Spirit. That shows up in Scripture, right? Here's a racing theological course in the non-experiential descriptions. And, and I say that limitedly because uh, at some level there is experience in everything that we're describing. But you'll be hard-pressed to find that the, this Pentecost-type experience is a different experience, if it's even noticeable. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What's it feel like for those things to happen to you? Did you have an encounter that felt like the upper room at Pentecost when God justified you? Some of us have taken years and years and years to read Galatians and Romans backwards and forwards till we finally realize, I'm right with God. So when you got justified, when it happened to you, because you know when you came to realize it, that's not when you got right with God. You were justified by the Spirit of God through what Jesus Christ did. So that happened long before you clued in. Did you feel it? No. For most people. Or even the washing. or did you know, What did it feel like to be set apart for God? Did you, did you notice that? Did you translate it? You, you got a new address? Or did you not even know that happened? And the Bible had to tell you about it. Chapter 6, verse 15 in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Right? We just looked at this. He was joined to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. What's that feel like? Anybody in here? Oh, I remember the day when I became one spirit with the Lord. It's like the colors change. I mean, there's no description there, is there? But it's true. It actually did happen. Titus chapter 3. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There was a moment when the washing of regeneration, a new life came to us. Some people have an experience right there. Some people do not. They, they came to believe the gospel. They prayed. They received Christ by faith. But they didn't experience much. Martin Lloyd-Jones throws a word in here that I want to make sure we get a view of. He describes regeneration as a radical change in the disposition of the soul, a change that impacts the whole person, instantaneous, and number four, unconscious. You, you may not really be aware. You may not have had that kind of mental, physical encounter awareness. You may have, some have an experience in that moment, but many do not. Right, so here's an interesting thing. I'm going to pick up the, one of the few times Paul's going to use the term of baptism and spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Paul's going to say this. For in one spirit, you were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. All right, this is the cornerstone verse for teaching that everything that's going to happen to you happened to you when you got saved. You got it all. All right, what I want to just highlight here is that sits, that is a moment in which Paul, we know the Corinthians, right? Paul is trying to unify these people by explaining to them the common experience that they all share, that somehow in the courts of heaven, in the plan of God, all were put into Christ by the Spirit. That 
It's not the same description of being baptized in the Holy Spirit or receiving the Spirit that you see everywhere else in the New Testament. This is the common ground that every Christian is on. This is, this is not trying to explain what Luke has been building all this time. So Paul is using some terminology that he doesn't use a lot of. Luke uses it a lot. If you want to go and look at what's baptism in the Spirit about, study Luke profoundly. The end of the Gospel of Luke and all of the book of Acts. Because he's going to talk about it quite a bit. Paul's not going to talk about it much. R.T. Kendall says, Paul is not saying all Christians receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, as described by Luke in the book of Acts, at conversion. Certainly not. First Corinthians 12, 13 is not describing an experience. It refers to an objective, unconscious event. It's therefore not a reference to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's described in the book of Acts. Neither is it a verse that says you get it all at conversion. Now, those who say that 1 Corinthians 12, 13 shows you get it all at conversion and is supported by 1 Corinthians 1, 7, you do not lack any spiritual gift, I ask, why does Paul urge the Corinthians in the same letter to covet the best spiritual gifts? Why does Paul, in just a few chapters from where we are in Corinthians, turn to the Corinthians and say, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Because he stands and establishes a reality. Dear Christian, point in this direction because there's more. And if you start believing, I got it all, I got it all, you're going to be a blob on the sofa in the Christian realm. Now, in the terms of having it all, listen, there is a, there's a reality of all that God manages and has done and has decreed that, that nothing is going to be added to that. We are living in that which God has fully done, decreed, and given. But the Bible still turns around and, and, and puts something in front of us and says, hey, go for that. Go for it. Have faith for that. Walk in that. And when it says that to us, it implies, if it doesn't come right out and say it, you don't have this yet. So everybody needs to be on okay ground theologically to be able to give yourself permission to say there are things in God that I don't have yet. And be okay with that. And be prepared to receive whatever it is that God does have for us. All right, here's a... Oh, I need to stop. Quick thought. You got to see this race through it. These words are in the New Testament. Baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, received the Spirit, the Spirit came upon or fell upon. Right? These words are all over the place. Watch what they sound like as we just finish here in, in Acts and the band can come back up here. Acts 2.4 They were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So an event with a recognizable component to it. Chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So again, there's an, there's an effect that comes. The Spirit has come, place shakes, and there's this inner boldness that comes inside them in that moment. Acts chapter 8. They sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they may, listen to the terminology, receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet, quote, fallen on any of them for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
That is a theologically chunky little sentence to chew on. What do you think it meant that they've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? Do you think we're talking about Christians here? By chance? Of course we are. Is there another Jesus out there? Would the early, did the early church have two versions of Jesus? Hey, we're going to baptize you in the grade B Jesus. You're not going to get everything. Um, it'll get worked out later. I, I think they preach the gospel accurately. And these guys received the gospel, believed, and were baptized. And then they laid their hands on them, verse 17. And they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me that power. He saw something enough that he was willing to pay money for it. I want to be able to do that. How, how, how can I do that? Can you teach me to do that? They saw, he saw something in this moment. Acts 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. Thank you, Joel. There's your word. Poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And how did that happen? Notice, I want you to see the variety here. In some places, they laid hands and prayed. In other places, it just happened while the meeting was going on. Peter's just preaching. He's just standing up doing what I'm doing. And all of a sudden, over here and over here and over here. And God was just doing something in individuals. And they begin to experience the nearness of God as the Spirit came on them this way. Acts 11. Peter's got to explain this event. This is what he says. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There it is. That's the thing that John inaugurated this season of the church with. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, how did he know that? Because he saw. They spoke in tongues. Acts 19. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, so what do you have here? And, and where do I want us to go with this? There is a dynamic in the Christian life that is associated with Pentecost. It's associated with these types of words about the Spirit. This falling upon and coming upon and receiving of the Spirit brings with it something that's more like plugging in an appliance than it is reading a book. It has an impact on us. It awakens things in us. It imparts things to us. How does that happen for any of us? Well, if I just pick up the book of Acts and say, what did it look like for them? I think in God, it could have happened while we're in this meeting right now. Already. It could have happened when you're just standing and worshiping God. It could happen at any moment between you and God. An exchange where you're filled with the Spirit and empowered by Him. And you sense God's nearness in a fresh and different way. It could happen as we lay our hands on you and pray for you. And I want to do that this morning. I want us to give time for you guys to come forward and let us pray for you. I asked the elders to, to tell me their experience, and I knew most of these stories. And, and this is why I say this, because I don't know if it was Evan who said this during the... I think he did say this. Um, and he would have been a good student of Martin Lloyd-Jones in saying this. 
Revival isn't something that you can stick a sign in the front of a church and create. I know a lot of churches have tried to do that. Revival, Wednesday night. Uh, it doesn't work that way. The pouring out dimension is something God does. God does this. We receive something God does. And there's a need for us to receive it. And there's different experiences in receiving. Right? My experience of seeking the more of God was in Lakeview Christian Center, 1983. The old building faced that way. I would have come forward to be prayed for on the left side of the altar. Guys came and prayed for me. I don't remember who it was that prayed for me. The pastor prayed for me. I'm not sure who else prayed for me. I was eager. I wanted to receive from God. I, I was convinced this was what God wanted for me. And I saw it in scripture. Received prayer. Nothing happened. I didn't feel any different. I didn't have any kind of an experience. No encounter. So, you know, part of me had to get over that. Kind of felt like I took a chance, stepped out. Nothing happened. I felt a little cheated. I felt like there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my walk, right? Everybody, everybody familiar with asking these kinds of questions in your life? God didn't show up some kind of way. Must be, you know. But I went on about my business, kept on pursuing, kept praying. I was encouraged to do that. And I don't remember how many weeks later it was. I was just in my prayer closet, sitting and praying. I remember exactly where I was. I remember the posture I was seated in. And I'm just praying and suddenly these words start literally tumbling out of my mouth that were not mine. And kind of caught me by surprise. Kind of stopped myself. Like, had I not been reading in this area and paying attention to this area, I would not have known what was happening to me. But I understood that, that God had manifested his life in me in the gift of speaking in tongues. And so from that day forward, I have spoken in tongues and operate at some level with that gift. But there was a distance between you laid your hands on me and there was weeks later where that happened. Um, I, well, that's the experience of the other guys as well. Frank tells a story about when he was in the spring semester, sophomore year at LSU. He went to a midweek service where the minister was preaching on the power of the Holy Spirit. He invited all those interested in receiving the Spirit to come forward. Frank goes forward. Problem was, Frank says, I wasn't saved. <laughs> Just a small asterisk on that moment. <laughs> but that night I surrendered my life to Christ. In the weeks and months to come, I was learning about the Holy Spirit and the ways he would powerfully move on those whom he had saved. I began to ask the Lord for a manifestation of his presence empowering me. I'm not sure the day of the week, but I was at my parents' home in New Orleans, on my knees, in our guest room, asking God to fill me when suddenly a language that I was totally unaware of came flowing out of my mouth. At that moment, I knew God had given me the gift of tongues, and I thankfully rejoiced in his kindness for his gift. Over 40 years subsequent to receiving the gift of tongues, I am grateful to God for the continued source of comfort, peace, and confidence in him the practice of this gift brings me. Phil, Phil Widener tells his story this way. <clears throat> Grew up in a Christian home. Got saved about 25 years old. I cried out to Jesus from my bed in California. Having dabbled in every spiritual nonsense and varieties of drugs, I was hopeless until that night. I'd certainly known of Christ throughout my life, but I met him that night. Came home to New Orleans on a vacation in 1977. We attended a charismatic prayer service at St. Edward's Church in Metairie. My parents were engaged in the charismatic renewal. My first experience with these strange sounds and such heartfelt worship wooed my soul. I was a new believer, 
but had not experienced anything like that before. I asked my father what was happening. He led me to Acts in 1 Corinthians. He shared his experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit with me. I wanted it and began to pray for this baptism. I prayed for quite some time, months, even years, when one night in my living room, Dad led me in a prayer, and we had prayed many times before, and suddenly this miraculous, unintelligible language began to pour out of my mouth. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Steve Roberts tells his story this way. A few months after I accepted the Lord, we went to a church that emphasized the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was a weeknight service with only about 20 people in attendance. Obviously, we stood out as visitors. After the service, they prayed over us. Then we put on choir robes, got baptized in water, and came up and began to speak in tongues. So this doesn't happen for everybody the same exact way, does it? And sometimes there's a moment where you pursue and there's a moment where you encounter and they're not exactly the same moments. But but here's what I want to challenge you with. You're going to take the church, many of you young people especially, you're going to take the church into the next decade. Are are you going to take this with you? Because if you're not, you might as well just wait in Jerusalem for Jesus to come back. Because he said, wait till you're clothed with power. There is a power dimension of the Christian life that Jesus taught was not negotiable. It's a hill to die on. You need to have this. So listen, some of you guys are here. You're the church of the future. And if this is an unexplored category of your life, you, you need to get it out of the unexplored category. It's a long anticipated day that God wants to meet us. So this morning, I want to be able to pray for folks, for God to meet you here, for God to meet you when you go home, for God to meet you next week. That's his business, right? He does the outpouring. We just do the praying. All right, so let's stand up together. Lord, this day, this is Pentecost Sunday. It's remembering a day that you saw. You were holding something until that day. The giving of a common, powerful encounter with your spirit to your people. God, it's an each one invitation. It's a unique expression that they're going to receive from you. God, when your spirit comes, there is a different power in our lives. When it comes this way, and Lord, when we look at the scriptures, we see an opportunity for more. Lord, I pray that for each of us today. But for every person who's here this morning saying, that's, that's, uh, I need more. I, I need more than where I'm at. I need God's power on my life. And, and I want to initiate or for the hundredth time pursue that power so God would you give faith would you give eagerness would you make room God would you put weapons in our lives that we're willing to die on this hill we're not willing to have some idea that doesn't go with us into the future God we want it to affect our lives as a church as each person who's here today so I'd be in this meeting with us right now as we pray for folks Bring your power, disrupt the flow of our lives, get our attention, and fill us, God. One person after another, distributing to each one individually as you will, fill us with your power. 
for all that you have for us. Listen, real simply, here's what I want to do. You want to receive prayer to be empowered, filled, have the Spirit of God come upon you. We want to pray for you this morning. So I'm going to dismiss everybody else in just a minute. But if you want prayer, go ahead and come out from where you are because I want to get a, a little bit of a feel for how many people do I need to have come pray just happened to be Pentecost Sunday when half of the church leadership team is in Mexico. <laughs> All right, so as, as folks are coming, let, let me recruit some, some folks here. And I, I'm, I'm going to say this in a way that I don't, I'm not meaning to be rude in saying it this way. I just am meaning to get your attention in saying it this way. certainly the guys who laid hands in the New Testament they were particular individuals and they happened to usually be guys who, who had some role, some influence. They were guys who carried, who carried the microphones. So definitely want our leaders who are here, who are recognized, who have authority to walk as leaders in the church, to be availing yourself to come and pray for folks. Place your hands on them and pray for power to come upon them. But I, I don't see anything in, in the scriptures that prohibit others from praying for others to receive this, this kind of power. So I want to say it this way because I want to challenge you. If you're here and you're current with the Spirit and you're not going to come pray out of something that's so old that it smells like yesterday. If that's who you are, like because you remember when you were baptized in the Spirit in 1973... And you can't find the Spirit since then or in the last 15 years. Listen, you need prayer. You don't need to come pray. You need prayer. So I'm not asking you to come pray. But if God has been using you and you sense the presence of God in you and you know what it is to be filled with the Spirit, come pray for these folks. Come let God use you in the gifting and powering that He's put in your life to impart things from God. So I'm going to invite those two sets of people to come and pray for these guys. And let's believe for a day. God wants us to receive from him. He wants us to receive from him. And whether that's going to be right here in this moment, which for some it will be, or it's going to be at another point, make room for that. Let your heart be open to what God has for you. So whatever other pastors, elders, small group leaders, you guys feel led to come and pray. Come on up here and I'm going to let Kurt lead us. All right, Kurt's going to lead us for a moment. I know we're, we're getting to 12 o'clock. So when Kurt's done leading us, he's going to let you guys be dismissed if you're not praying here this morning. But you guys are welcome to pray with these guys as long as we need to. Let's wait on God. Let me just pray for us. Father, thank you for moments, days on the calendar. Thank you for the stories of our own lives that point to places where we became aware there was more and then more showed up. We experienced more and, and you broke into our lives in powerful ways. Lord, we want that as a church and we want that to go into our future because it's essential. So Lord, meet us this morning. Let this be a transfer moment where your spirit comes and awakens and stirs and empowers and imparts in fresh ways for each person who is here this morning, God. We wait for you now. In Jesus' name.